Welcome to John Susco's A Better Way to Divorce podcast. John Susco is a Florida family law attorney whose practice is focused on collaborative divorce and mediation. And now, here's John Susco. Welcome back to another edition of the John Susco podcast. Um, today, I have the honor of uh, talking to a, a, a person who I've not yet met. Um, I have um, I have been talking to her though for a long for a few few, few months, and she is a collaborative lawyer. She's living in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, in Canada. She uh, is a lawyer practicing in the Law Society of Prince Edward Island, and she went to University of Victoria Law School, and she has been active in the uh, collaborative area since about 1998. She has tremendous energy. Uh, uh, She has written books, she has done seminars, and she's got an active practice. Um, And I want you to welcome uh, Jacinta Gallant. Is that that pronouncing your name right? Oh, that's such a sweet question. It depends. Well, tell me what it depends upon. Well, so it was originally a French last name, Gallant. Gallant. And historically, certain parts of Canada, um, the French language has has was really lost in some parts, and so really we say galant. Okay. And if we're francophone speaking, we would say galant. But okay. a lot of people say galant. I okay. think there was one. There was a soap opera person many years ago with the last name Galant. But anyway, we're all the name originated in Prince Edward Island, so it's either galant or galant. Galant. Okay. For me, it's galant. Tell us. Uh, first thing I'd like you to tell is tell me how you got into collaborative law. Tell me about your practice before and tell me about it after. Well, sure. I mean, like many lawyers, I went to law school thinking that I really wanted to make the world a better place. Coming from a political science background, I was really interested in policy and and legislation and, and governance. But in fact, when I got to law school, I realized that I was quite interested in practice. So... Another interesting point is that my husband is a police officer. So he was a new police officer. I was a new lawyer and I did a mix of everything. I did some criminal law. Actually, he was quite helpful in that area. Mm -hmm. I did some family law. I did a bit of everything. And when I became a mother, shortly after I became a lawyer, I decided I wanted to focus so that I could work part time. And family law really suited me. I liked the people. I liked the problems. I liked the fact that it was a mix of everything. There was emotional, psychological stuff. There was math. <laughs> there was business. There's money, and uh, and I found that I really it was really quite suited to me. So when did you start practicing uh, family law? Uh, darn it, 1993. I 1992. I became a lawyer. Okay. Yeah. So for the first six years, you were in court, or yeah, really- yeah, yep. Okay. I was, and in fact, I liked it. I like many of us who are collaborative lawyers, we can say that there's part of the justice system and the court process that was quite enjoyable. It was a bit theatrical. I hated it with families. Okay. Now, how did you, how did, where did you first get trained as a collaborative professional? Well, interesting. I was on the West coast of Canada. So I was in British Columbia and we were already sort of leading the, the charge for mediation across the country. And so many family lawyers when I was starting out, we're getting trained as mediators and we understood mediation as a process. And so when the collaborative, when the collaborative 
pro collaborative law, collaborative practice movement began. We were involved in British Columbia around the same time as, as everyone else was, a little bit later, I think, than San Francisco or Minneapolis. But many of us were already mediators. And so we got it. And I think that when I think of my experience learning this on the West Coast, where many of us were already mediators, it was it was a little easier sell because we understood the dynamic and the importance of the dialogue to reach agreement. Now, the mediation aspect going, it, how how prevalent was it in British Columbia? Well, when when I was starting out, it was becoming more and more common that if you're a family lawyer, you're going to take mediation training, even if you don't end up being a mediator. Um, and so, but I'll still say that many, many lawyers who want to work uh, with peaceful approaches to divorce and still find themselves not busy enough in mediation um, are disappointed to find that it, that it isn't as mainstream even now as we'd like it to be. Though I will say that it's pretty common for people to consider mediation as a process. No, I, so when I, I, collaborative came along, it was basically taking that, that approach and enhancing it with advocacy and the inclusion of other professionals like mental health and financial. No, I, I went to the first ABA training on mediation. It was Gary Friedman who, who was the one of the instructors. And I came back and I thought I was going to come become the McSusco of Florida mediation. Yeah. And I was, but that wasn't worth anything, you know, yeah. and it never got started in the, the even through the 90s. So I understand. Um, it's a challenge. And I feel really I, I think we're on the cusp, though. I think 10 years from now, things in family law are not going to look anything like they do now. I hope so. I hope so. Um, and. Where you are right now, that's a, a small community, is it not? I well, mean, you it's haven't... interesting. It's interesting okay. people think that. Of course, if you look at numbers population-wise, Prince Edward Island has 165,000 people. 165,000. So that would be like a suburb of where you are, John. <laughs> no, it's, it, it would be my town, but go ahead. Your town. I mean, okay. Yes, okay. that's right. Okay. But um, because the way Canada is set up, I mean, Prince Edward Island is its own province. So it's like a state. So we have great restaurants, wonderful cultural locations. We have university. We have So the city itself of Charlottetown, which is the capital, has about 65,000 people. And uh, we feel pretty lucky to be in a place where it's a small center. You can still walk around the city and enjoy it. But we've got everything. I have everything here, too, but it's yeah. a small place. I mean, I understand. I mean, I've yeah. been in big cities and I've been in small cities and I, I love the city. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about what you learned in your almost 30 year career about what the people feel when they come into your office. I, I, I heard you speak about that at the at the forum. Tell me a little bit about what they're going through. Wow, that's, a, that's such a good question. And I think that that it goes to the heart of the work we're trying to do, John. I think so many people who have their first appointment with a lawyer are terrified. Um, they're terrified that they're going to lose control of their lives. They're worried that they, that, that they have no control over decisions. And the first thing I hear from so many clients is, I don't want to go to court. I don't know what your experience has been, but consistently since I've started practicing family law, the words, I don't want to go to court or I'm terrified we'll end up in court 
are expressed. Okay. But I know um, other lawyers that don't hear that all the time. And so I think that there's something about the openness that we can show to clients meeting them where they're at, both emotionally and uh, in terms of the information they need, that helps us understand those concerns that, that I don't think they express in every lawyer's office. So I wanted to offer that other side. All right. Let me, uh, I, I, yesterday I saw a seminar that Bob Merlin put on uh, about uh, to, to the family law section. And he was talking about, in Florida, there is no requirement that there is no stated requirement that lawyers have to go through all the different avenues of res responsibility. Is it different in Canada? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in Canada, well, ahead, truly, I, I think that certainly you have very, I would say having now been working with so many different American lawyers talking about the laws in each state, um, we do have a national um, divorce act, so it governs the entire country, and it is child friendly. It's parent friendly, and there is a requirement, and has been for well as long as I've been a lawyer, that lawyers are required to do two things: one, make sure clients understand the importance of making efforts to reconcile. So there's a there's a piece around being sure that that they're that it's really over. And second, to make sure that they understand that there's there, there's ways that they can work things out without using the court system and to be very specific about, about what those are. We have achieved one thing in the, 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 the new Divorce Act is going to be come into effect on March 1st. And we specifically asked them to add collaborative process to the list of things that lawyers have to tell clients about. And that's a huge step forward for us. Right. I mean, uh, yes, uh, I won't go through what happened in Florida, but we, we, we're, we're gaining on it, but yeah. slowly. Um, you know, some of the seminars that you put together, I mean, keeping interest at the table, um, you know, you talk about engaging more effectively with your clients and challenging, and the challenges of working in an interdisciplinary team, working with interest and option generation. Can you speak to some of that? Do you remember yeah. that seminar? Oh, listen, I mean, th this is my lived experience, remember? I mean, I'm kind of a, I, I laugh and say, I'm a bit of a conflict geek. I, I'm the fifth of six kids, and we're all like the same age now, and all our kids are the same ages. So I, I, I sort of grew up in this rough and tumble world of, of unconditional love and a little bit of chaos. And so I think I naturally came to be curious about how people interact with one another. And when I began, when I became a mediator, and then I became someone who was teaching these skills to our colleagues, it became apparent that everyone was struggling. Everyone was learning that, yes, if we can help shift clients from their positions and demands to understanding what matters underneath those demands, we have a lot more, there are many more possibilities for how they can peacefully make this transition. But if we're to be honest, a lot of lawyers will say, yeah, 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 we spend some time exploring interests or needs, concerns, hopes, and fears, and then they fall off the table and we go straight to deal-making. It's, it's a natural problem for us because as lawyers, one of the things that we're honored for is being good problem solvers. And there's pressure on us to help our clients get it. They won't say, they won't say it out loud maybe, but to get a deal, to get something done, they want it done yesterday. So the yep. pressure on collaborative teams, the pressure on mediators, the pressure on lawyers 
to get the job done can sometimes mean that, yeah, yeah, we've explored all that. Great. Now we know more. And we go to option generation. We forget what we learned mattered. And we forget to bring that along. So I just developed a couple of tools to help us be more structured in our in our process so that we can make sure we bring keep those interests on the table when they're exploring their options. Well, let's go right into your book. Um, and let me explain something. I, I, I did not know about the second book. And I went and looked today. And on Monday, I am interviewing or having on my podcast, Carol Hughes, yes. who is, you know, who, who yes. will follow up and all this. And she was, and she, she actually had, uh, she, she talked about a, a woman by the name of Mary Ainsworth, who was a Canadian. And Mary was my college admit, college counselor back oh, in really? the, in the seventies. Um, so again, I mean, it was interesting that, that I, saw the two of you guys right there at the same time. And again, I had never thought about uh, the people of the older adult. I mean, it, it's amazing. And, and, and I, I had a, a Sunday school class that I taught and there was a 70 year old guy in the back room when we got to the point of, you know, getting people to put their hands up in terms of divorce and he was crying. Yeah. And I said, why are you crying? Because I, I knew these people. Yeah. And he said, my parents stayed together until I went off to college. So exactly. he, he was holding that for 50 years. So again, I mean. Well, what Carol and Bruce have created in that book is remarkable. I've got three copies at the office. Well, actually, I have three because they were so kind as to send me one when I after I'd already ordered two. I understand. So, um, but I think that that is going to be something that we pay attention to. And that's why I know we're going to talk about the workbooks, but that's why I wanted to have a special workbook for couples who are separating with adult children. Okay. Now this book here, the, the first book, um, you and I have talked about the fact that there are lawyers down here in Florida that won't use it if the other side doesn't use it. Um, and, and I've got to believe that handing this to somebody when they walk in the door, regardless of whether they are in an adversarial or not, this book is is golden. Yeah, well, that's what I've learned too. And so as we've been rolling it out, we've been learning from all our colleagues. I mean, what I love about our collaborative community is we're generous and op and, and awesome and enthusiastic and, and earnest and we really care about families. So so what I what I started out with was to create a workbook for my own clients. I wasn't even thinking of an export product or anything. I just was tired of, I don't know, I was tired of situations where I was in collaborative and the my client was prepared for dialogue and showed up and ended up with debate. And, and, and I don't want to cast blame or say it was the other lawyer's fault or whatever. I just got tired of thinking, I want my clients to be prepared for whatever process they're in. And so the workbook that started was first Our Family in Two Homes, with, which addresses um, communication and conflict challenges, asks about values and trust, but does it in a really practical way so that people don't feel, I don't know, that it's inappropriate for a lawyer to be asking about it. You know how you'll often hear lawyers saying, you know, I feel like sometimes you want me to be a social worker and, and you know, we have coaches for that and we want to respect that role. So I think that what I'm most excited about it is that the feedback I get from clients is that going through the workbook, which is about 40 pages, it's so accessible. It, they feel like they're supported. They feel respected 
because it invites them to reflect on stuff before they meet with us so that, you know, it's not all about the show with us. And so my clients, when they receive the workbook, by the time I meet with them, they've already begun to imagine who they are, how they show up with their partner, what the obstacles are in the way of getting agreement. But they, it's not positioned them in any way. It doesn't tell them anything. It just asks a lot of really good questions. Right. Something I want to uh, go back to. You mentioned that you were trained as a mediator and, and the young, or the second youngest of, of six, fa six family members. Yeah. And that you enjoy some of the conflict. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I, I, I have the same same feeling with with mediation. I mean, it's fun to not. It's not fun to watch, but. I mean, it's fun to to work on that. And tell us a little bit. I mean, people going through collaborative do not have to come in singing Kumbaya. Right. They often don't. <laughs> right. If they do, they've sung it at the kitchen table and then we're just drafting their documents. Uh, I mean, tell me about um, some of how this book has ha impacted some of your clients or some of the other people's clients. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, uh, well, okay, it's it's interesting because I can always speak from my own experience, so I'll do that first. But but FYI, we now know from the number of lawyers and 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 collaborative teams actually that have been using the workbooks with their clients. We now know that what I tell you is happening there as well. So what I learned initially was, you know, when I was just doing it with my clients, it wasn't even in my thinking that it would be for everyone, was I would ask the client, can you please do the first 13 pages of the workbook before we meet? Now, there's some variation in how we all see clients, and I don't want to get into all of that. But for a client that I know is coming for a meeting, and I know that they're going to spend some time working with me, I want them to do the first 13 pages, which asks them to reflect on what they hope will be better if they spend time reflecting and preparing, um, what they're concerned about, what their communication style might be around thinking out loud or, 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 or processing internally before you put it out there, you know, introvert, extrovert stuff. Um, what, how they respond when emotions are strong and they feel conflict coming up, which is to us, what's their conflict style? Um, what kind of misinterpretations do they experience with one another? What are the behaviors that they show when the other person disagrees? So it's very, very much asking if it's me to reflect on who I am. But it doesn't feel like it's touchy-feely, it's very practical. And then it also asks about values in a really, really productive way that's different from just looking at abstract notions of justice, fairness, or peace. And one of my favorite pages, page five, really digs down into trust and breaks it into workable parts. So I can give you an example of some of the things that have happened. You know, so I say, please do the first 13 pages. I'll see you on Thursday. And when the client arrives, event, you know, build rapport, do whatever needs to be done. But, but when the moment comes to move forward with the workbook, I'll say, what did you learn about yourself? And then because they've done the, the, the 13 pages that get at values, trust, communication, conflict, hopes, fears, interpretation, feedback, all those things in a really practical workbooky way, They'll go right to what resonated with them. I learned that, my God, when we argue, it's no wonder, you know, my partner's always closing the door. I think she's an introvert and she doesn't, she can't stand me thinking out loud all the time. Or 
oh my God, I learned how much I avoid conflict. I hate it. And I think that what happens when we're communicating is I'm avoiding and I'm, and that means that he's chasing after me to try and get me to engage. And I, you'd think that the way I'm describing this was after I do a lot of work with the, with the clients or after they've done some therapy or work with a coach, but this is what they say. Oh my God, I realized we are, our trust is so broken down, but I now do see that there are parts of that we do still have and that we can restore because they looked at page five. Five is your- I had a client say, the values card sort, which is an exercise and you get cards to, was so hard to do. And in fact, I hated it, but I followed the instructions and I did it diligently. And she said, I learned that what I really, what I really believe in is collaborative decision-making and, and giving everyone a chance to be heard. But in reality, I want to be the boss. Like I, when I think about decision-making with my spouse, it's going to be really hard to share. And so these insights, they come with them. And all I do is start with how did, what did you learn about yourself? <laughs> and then they talk, blah, blah, blah. And then I'll say, what did you learn about your partner? Because there's elements of the first 13 pages that ask you to even imagine how you would characterize your partner, but without positioning or labeling. It's very carefully done. And then, well, I learned that maybe the reason why we have tr so much trouble communicating is that you know, she never leaves me alone. I want, I need time to process and she's always chasing me. And so people come up with this. I had one client who read ahead to the money personality parts and said, I figured out why we always fight about money. And then he got right into, it was a bit of introvert, extrovert, but it was also just attitudes about money, fears about money. And all I did was ask, what did you learn about yourself? It used to take me three or four hours with a client to get that level of engagement. And so then we're flying do you have any, let me explain something. I, 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 I don't like to write. Okay. I mean, I, and, right. and, and so I would, I would put this off, you know, I'm not would, alone. Okay. And, and, and what, what problems do you see to get people to, you know, engage it? Because again, I understand what you're saying. And I know. Okay, and I tell, have me, an for tell me, tell me about, give me the answer because I'm going to start to use it, and you know, I want to try to use it and get it. I want to, I want to have those discussions that you have. I, I am a social worker too, you know. Right, I have a, right. I, but go ahead, tell me. I'll so, shut up. So this primes them for the conversation. Think of it that way. A lot of people are are thinking that the client completes the workbook and hands it in. No, I'd say this is your private journal. Write in it or not, because if, to be honest, if it were me, I probably wouldn't write much either. I'm so extroverted and I would keep so many things and ideas in my head, but my, I would still do the workbook, but I would remember, oh my God, this. So I might do the box ticking things, but where there's space for comments, I might not write it out. I might just absorb it internally and hold on to it. So I've seen people write a lot and I've seen people write a little. When clients come up, I don't ask them to share. I don't ask them to open their workbook. I keep my empty copy on the table so I can refer to page eight or nine, the communication and conflict style, or go to the trust page without them having to reveal. Okay? So that's one part of the question. You don't have to take pen to paper, though, as a social worker, you would know that there's some real um, cognitive psychological benefit of thinking, engaging, and making and writing something out. Okay, so I respect that. So our clients are always told, this is your journey. 
use it or use it or don't, but they always do. Um, then we have a, developed a digital tool called Nudges. And you don't know about this yet because we're just, we finally, like, we finally have it. And so what it does is it's an interactive, uh, think of like SurveyMonkey. If, if you get a survey, you click on the button and you're asked to answer a few questions. Well, that's what we've done with Nudges only. We've created our own, our family and two homes platform so that Lloyd, the, the person using our product can log in, create, put the client name in and send nudges. Some of the nudges might be just, just that. Hey, how are you doing? How's, have you done the first 13 pages? And if so, what did you learn about yourself? And maybe just a two question thing. And the other nudges might be very much around information that we need so that the client has a chance to actually reflect on their answer instead of being on the telephone with energetic Jacinta, so what do you, or in the moment and having to respond right then. You know, I, the thing I learned was the magic isn't all in the room, right? It isn't all about what I facilitate and draw out. Giving clients a chance to reflect on the decisions they need to make and reflect on who they are and how they show up makes all the difference in our work. And it doesn't feel social worky or touchy-feely, though I love that stuff too, and I think you do. <laughs> For collaborative professionals who aren't, who aren't lawyers, I do want to say very clearly that this has been um, found to enhance their roles. So it doesn't replace the fact that the workbook for the clients contains reflection, really great questions about money and parenting, and gives legal information about what are the parenting words that we use legally? What are the child support rules? What are some things that you need to think about? How is spousal support or alimony handled? How does family property work? The, the law parts that are included in the workbook are intended to enhance the way we can explain things to clients so that when they're stressed and flooded and we're trying to explain something, we can say, you know what? If you review pages 24 to 27 tonight, it's all there. And if you still have questions tomorrow, let me know. What coaches are saying is that when they get, and sometimes it's a problem, clients will ask the coach or the financial person to comment on something legal. And they can say, well, actually it's all in your book. And I want you to make sure you review that and talk to John about it. We can help you that with that. But coaches and child specialists who are using the resource with their collaborative teams say just what I've said. It, the clients are better prepared to participate. So it doesn't replace the coach's role at all. It doesn't say to the child specialist, oh, you need to use this. They're just saying, it's great. Thanks for doing this. And it also has assisted with team communication. So if the child specialist has a meeting with the parents and they have a tough conversation about trust, that child specialist can go back to the professional team and say, we talked about trust, we really worked on page five. And these are the things, which takes 45 seconds instead of two hours. And so I'm not saying it's all about saving time, but it, it enhances. That coach can then know, or the child specialist, that John and Jacinta are already imagining what page five is. Oh, so they talked about boundaries, reliability, privacy, accountability, honesty, non-judgment, or generosity. And a couple of things came up. This is going to keep coming up in our case. Let's 
let's stay focused on page five. Let me ask you something about the model that is used in Canada. Uh, we have down here in Florida, uh, we have the facilitator model, you know, that you had a mental health person yes. there and perhaps a financial person and, and selling and, and, and where I'm at, it's an, in, it's an, in, it's in its infancy. I mean, well, I'm starting to try to get a practice up and running and after getting out of it, but, but again, um, and people have cost fig figures. And yeah. so, I mean, so we're, you know, we're doing with what, what the clients come in with. And so tell me, first of all, the model and tell me what you saw in Canada while you were building your, your collaborative practice. Okay. So two, I want to, I want to take that in two parts. One, I want to okay. talk about how sort of the various models, cause they're very similar to what's happening in the U S and then I want to talk about, um, uh, the, the pricing question, because I, I actually have an answer on that for the that relates to our resource packages. So we we've developed uh, across the country some pockets that are very focused on the aligned two coach model. So two coaches, two lawyers, and there might be a financial where the financial is the only neutral. Um, and we've got lots of places that you where the uh, the mental health professional is a neutral, and we have child specialists who are always neutral. And that's a different, a special role. So what we're seeing happening though, and I would say across the country is a better understanding of that coach role, the mental health professional role, and uh, seeing more and more practice groups looking at both. So the idea that there are some families that might be really well suited or, or, or need a neutral facilitator mental health professional and others that really need each member each 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 parent or each spouse to have their own mental health professional coach and so it's about choice and one of the things that i'm really proud that we did in my community was we asked our coaches what role do you want to play so that it wasn't just about what's the best process but also asking the mental health professionals where do you see yourself playing bringing the most value because we found that some of our mental health professionals who were awesome didn't like the neutral role. They didn't want to facilitate meetings. That wasn't their thing. And so we're like, oh, well, what would you like to do? And, and slowly we're developing this capacity to allow the mental health professional to name the role they want to play, which isn't that sweet? It is <laughs> sweet, but I mean, tell me what, so if, if the mental health person does not like to run the meeting, what what do you do? I mean, do you have you have a yeah. lawyer step up or, or what? Yeah. You know? So so truly, if you don't have a neutral on the case, the lawyer who wants to act as facilitator, you do. The lawyers have to be better at facilitating a meeting, and that just means we have to have better skill. And and I want to just do a shout out to the fact that there are still many 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 communities where there aren't enough neutrals. So we're doing it already. And kind of pretending we're not. So no. lawyers have got to step up in terms of our own ability to manage conflict in those moments where we're trying to do our best to help this couple. And we may not have the facilitator. We may not have the neutral. Well, let me uh, let me tell you our experience, my experience in this town. Sure. I spent 2016 talking to every um, collaborative person that would talk to me. Stu, Ron, you got them. I, mean, I, I spent the whole year doing that. And and you are right. They're very generous and earnest and beautiful with their time. 
Um, and we got uh, we got a number of people trained in our town, and and I had some good mental health people. Yeah. And uh, the mental health people, because the because the lawyers that were the people that got the cases, were a little bit more marketing persons, and they a little bit more positional type people. And you know, two of them got out of it. The two, the best two, got out of it because they didn't want to be. You know, they were always breaking up problems between the two lawyers, not the mental, not the the clients. Um, where am I going with this? I'm. Well, you're going. You're going to the place that we need to go. Okay, this tell is me. Happening everywhere, John. Okay. And almost everywhere, people think that it's their fault that they're just doing it wrong. And my heart really, really gets broken for that because that's what happened in my town, where I live. So, so if I'm so-called like a great trainer and an energetic person who can, you know, whatever, have an impact, um, that happened here. It's happening everywhere. I travel truly. I've been in many parts of the world where I do hear people telling me this, the stories of their struggle. And a lot of it is trying to find a way to team that works, that works for the clients, that works for the professionals. And so in some places you will see this where the lawyers have developed really great skills around conflict, which is really mediation skills in an advocacy role. Well, they can manage a lot. And then the role of the mental health professional can be, doesn't have to be refereeing or, or, or managing the meeting, can be very focused on the areas where they have tremendous, <laughs> like tremendous skill. And I had the same experience here. They were tired of refereeing. So they said, I'd rather work in a two coach model and then you guys sort out your own stuff. All right. So I got to spend some time with our mental health people to find out what they're, what they're feeling. Well, that's what we did. And, and, and honestly, and it, worked. it was, a, it was very insightful to get their answers. And, and it, I, I'm going to just, well, I, I kind of, this is just my take, but I do think that in many ways, our mental health professionals haven't, haven't been the ones defining their role as, but, and they're, they're fabulous, by the way. Like I, I always want to say, I have such respect, but in many situations, the lawyers are bringing them in to manage what we don't think we can manage. And I don't think that's their job all the time. I, I, I think, I think they is, can be fabulous. I think this is another seminar that you've got to work on and I'll help you with that if, if you're game. Uh, but I mean, uh, if you have time, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's it's about like I I've struggled so hard as a lawyer who happens to have a lot of skill around um, conflict resolution and communication and can sort of hide in some ways as having some 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 abilities that the mental health professionals bring to. But I want to I want to make room for lawyers who are not like me because they want to do this work. They, lawyers who care about families may not all have the time or the inclination to develop the, the finely honed conflict resolution skills that you need to manage a collaborative case without a neutral that's going to take that on. And I think we need to make room for those people by really defining what role everyone on the team can play, including a mediator. So do you want to know what happened in our town? Sure, yes, please. We're lucky, right? Because we know each other. So I said very meekly, 
guys, like I'm really good at managing conflict. Uh, sometimes I'm on the collaborative team and I'm sitting as an advocate as the collaborative lawyer and I'm, and I'm not, I'm not using my skills because I know it's not, it's, I'm, I'm making room for the facilitator. And then the facilitator will say, I hate doing that. <laughs> Why don't you do it? I'm like, well, my role is like, we have to be careful, right? If I, if I'm taking over that, then what does the other client and lawyer think? So we were all over this. And I said, what if we did collaborative mediation? And I thought it was a four letter word. I thought we weren't allowed to say that because everyone was worried about watering down collaborative practice um, by offering new models. And I'm like, well, but what if the person in the group that can best manage this conflict on this case happens to just be a lawyer or the best person happens to be a mental health professional or the best person is the financial professional to manage the conflict and help manage the case. What if? And they're like, yeah. So we all agreed before it was, and it's, we all agreed that we would start doing collaborative cases where I might take on the role of neutral, not a mental health professional in any way. We call me the neutral facilitator because I like the way Florida used that term. And so we're just rolling that out now. Look, I, I think that it also gives the freedom for a mental health professional who feels really strongly that their skills are in facilitation to say, maybe the case will start with me and I build the collaborative team from this, which, which is kind of like a collaborative mediation approach. Or the financial neutral might be, in my experience with our town, most of our financial neutrals were really happy to be resources, a part of the team, but they didn't want to become facilitators and that was fine. Well, if one of them did want to, maybe the case comes in through their door and they're the neutral facilitator. It's a challenge because, because we, what do you do with the area of expertise you need? Like, I don't know, but when I'm the, if I'm the neutral facilitator, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not giving legal advice. The lawyers are, but I'm bringing my conflict resolution skills in a way that's unique to me. And I'm not replacing a mental health professional who has a whole other skill set that could be working on something else. I understand what you're saying, and I I, I agree with. I mean, let me explain. I, I back when 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 mediation was starting, I had a case where two accountants were getting a divorce. I'm not not divorce. They were it was a non compete clause. Yeah. Okay. And and you know I I, I talked with them and I saw that the, the, the more the young accountants or accountants lawyer who I knew talked, the angrier the older accountant got. Right. And, and when I broke into sessions, I said to him, I said, you know, here's a trial balloon. You know, if I could get an apology and a thousand dollar check, would this case go away? He said, you bet it would. And I shared that with the other side. And, you know, 20 minutes later, they all thanked me. And that was the only time in my long career that people genuinely were happy <laughs> with the result, you know, because, and that's my skill. And I, so I understand what you're saying. Um, but I, but I think that the important thing is it's it's so hard because so many people, so many people who want to do the work that we all that we want to do, think they should already be good at it because by the time they come to collaborate, they're already seasoned professionals, mental health, financial, or legal, and it can be hard to spend the time then honing skills that you might not already have. I understand what you're saying. 
Just I was giving you the pause for the cough. That's all. Thank you. Go ahead. Um, um, we could continue this for forever. I mean, I, I could be talking with you. I'd yeah, love to I talk to you. Um, I guess if you can tell me a little bit about when it you when you have seen this book help to break an impasse or deal with a yeah. collect, tell me about that. There's just so many examples, and and I'll tell you, I'll give you a couple of examples. But I want you to know that that what the workbook, the reason the workbook has such an impact, is that it prepares them for the conversations that are going to happen when they're in a joint session. That's the difference. So it doesn't work to just, okay, it doesn't work to just train the professionals to be better at what we do, because that makes it all about us. And we know that's not the way it is. But everyone has tried in some small way to do more client preparation. And I basically just took a year off to create this. So here's an example. Mom and dad, this is a mom and dad situation in Canada. Disney World is the one in Florida, right? So before, the, before COVID, dad wants to take the children to Disney World for a vacation, okay? Mom doesn't want that to happen. Secretly, she doesn't trust that he'll supervise. There's all this stuff going on, all this fear. There's worries about addiction and all the stuff that we see in so many cases. And so this was a, this was a mediation. So there was no child specialist or coach involved. But what happened was they got angry at one another you just don't trust me. Well, how, how, why would I trust you? And, and we've all heard the trust argument. So I take a breath. I open my empty workbook to page five. I slow down. I don't say, oh, stop. You know, you said you wouldn't use accusatory language. I didn't call a communication guideline. I took a piece of paper, which is a workbook. I turned it to them and said, it sounds like this is about trust. And they looked up. So they looked at me for a moment. I said, yeah, so this is hard, acknowledgement. And then I turned the page. It's a beautifully laid out page. The thing is, they've already seen it, but they're not revealing their answers. And so I said, okay, well, I know that you need to work on this because you wanna make this decision because the trip's coming up. So which part of trust have broken down and which parts do you hope to restore? And so I turned the page to them. And I said, let's start with which parts you still have. And so they looked, their brains had seemed to engage, the thinking and the feeling brain seemed to engage. She said, I think we're pretty good to respect each other's boundaries and give each other privacy. And he said, I would agree with that. And, but I also think we rely on one another. I think, I think we have reliability. And she looked at him and said, I don't think so. And I said, Okay, so there's disagreement on that. What else? Is there anything else you already have? So they settled on, they have boundaries and privacy, not sure about reliability. And I said, okay, which parts do you want to work on? So they had a bit of a conversation. And long story short, they decided that they needed to be more generous in their interpretations of one another and to be less judgmental in interpreting everything that she says or he says to be like a, a stab in the heart. So it's, it sounds like when I'm describing it without the workbook in front of you, it sounds like, well, that all sounds like work the coach would do in the room. And it is. The thing is, in the moment where our clients are arguing and saying, I don't trust you, well, guess what? That happens in my room, too. 
And so what I saw happen was what I think our mental health professionals can describe, which is that they went from their, their emotional argumentative way of being where they were, their thinking brain wasn't as attached, connected. And then they start thinking because they've already seen it. It's not contrived then. They get it. So then I say, okay, so you've agreed that you want to work on generous generosity, being more generous in your interpretation of one another, less judgmental, try to give a, a, a fair assessment of whatever's coming your way, and to work on reliability. And then I say, will you give me permission to remind you of that? Yes. And then, of course, in the next two hours, I had a chance to remind them of that a couple of times. But they decided, they, they decided what parts they were going to work on. And it wasn't me just giving the head pat saying, oh, don't worry, trust will, trust will come. So a lot of us are doing this already, John. What the workbook does is it prepares them and they're not, they're not caught off guard, but it in no way positions them. It only asks a bunch of good questions. And that is because I studied the inside approach to conflict for, for th three years before I started this. And it's a very different approach. So I'm really, 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 well, I get, I'm really proud of it, but I only do it for my favorite, for my clients. So the fact that it's now going around the world is like a dream come true. Well, Jacinta, you should be proud of it. I mean, it truly, and again, the idea of uh, having them work on it ahead of time is, is great. I'm going to start using that. Uh, we got to talk a little bit about it afterwards. Uh, but um, I, it has been a joy to talk with you. I think we will close for right now, and we may bring you back again uh, after I get to use to the workbook so I can respond and sort of say, yeah, this stuff works really well. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for your heart and your soul and everything you're putting into this podcast. This has been John Susco's A Better Way to Divorce podcast. John Susco is a Florida family law attorney. If you'd like to learn more about collaborative divorce or mediation, go to susco-collab-med.com or click on the link in the show notes below.